0: Where does the victimhood mindset come from? If you are an individual who is more sensitive than others, how do we build your resilience throughout life so you can overcome the inevitable struggles that life will throw your direction? A difference of opinion is not an attack. A diverted look or a delayed response to your text may have nothing to do with you. On today's podcast, we discuss an alarming, debilitating trend towards playing the victim.
1: Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Good morning, Roger Kelly. Good morning. How are you both? Doing well. Friendly reminder to our listeners, we do have an email address, radgenpodcast at gmail.com. Please email us any questions. We're going to work on a future episode where we're answering some of those. Appreciate all the feedback we have been receiving. And please remember to continue to share the episodes you enjoy. That's the way that we grow, and we are seeing some growth, which is really exciting, and we're constantly looking for new topics so that we're relevant to everybody. So here we are. We're back in the studio recording another episode. Kelly, I haven't seen you in a while.
0: I know. I heard. I heard that. Well, I listened to Seventeen, and it was pretty awesome. She's an amazing doctor. Yeah, Seventeen was our
1: dialectical behavior therapy podcast. I learned a lot. I think Roger learned a lot too, and he's going to be working on some things. So, uh, you know, the way that he treats us in this
0: room. Oh, I, I thought you were going to put a sign I, up on um, the door that we could slap, and uh, I don't see it.
1: I'm getting it uh, blessed by the uh, Catholic Church and, ah. and Notre Dame uh, University. Make sure that they're okay with it.
0: Yeah, and, I like that.
1: So. I thought I was vindicated by Dr. Linda, yeah.
2: to an extent. To an extent, she. I think she was supporting my radically genuine style. Hmm. Mm.
1: Yeah, well. Uh, There's a fine line, and I think uh, it's our responsibility to call you out when you do cross it. I, you know, really hope that you guys do. I think
0: think we've done a good job of doing that. I think so, too.
1: So, uh, Roger sent us a text message about a topic he wanted to talk today, and it made me think of a great story. So, um, here we go. Let's go back. 1996, 1997, a young Sean, University of Delaware. The year I was born. (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly so here uh university of delaware fourth floor dickinson hall a walking through the hallways chumbawamba is in the background oh my goodness living in a co-ed dorm co-ed floor all excited i'm a freshman i'm um um, guys were all tub thumping away there. that's right we got knocked down we got back up again (laughs) and that's really the lesson here right (laughs) no um so there was this one particular person on my floor and um, what? What's that look for? You just gave me a look. Roger, seriously. You know how hard this is to do a cold open, and every single time I come in here, you give me this look, and...
0: Can you I'm, describe the look?
1: It's a look of just disdain. Like, like I have no idea what I'm talking about, and he doesn't know where I'm going, but he he just doesn't listen. He just... He, instead, he's thinking about what he wants to say next. Sean, my coffee was hot. <sighs> well, I don't know. I just... I think most people have been listening to this podcast, and they know how you treat me in this room. I just want you to acknowledge the fact. Are you uh, that? That's so. Are naive. you? Cl- uh, sounds like
0: you're. <laughs> sounds like you're playing the role of victim here.
1: Oh, you got me. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, I, I didn't have a story, but um, so I, I is, I'm trying to think of an example of what this could be, and and you wanted to talk about this today, so uh, why don't you jump into it with that?
2: Yeah, I do think that we wanted to get into this topic of. um, you know, the mindset of victimhood and like Mm. victimhood culture that kind of exists and even play it into disability culture and how they like intertwine together. But your opening there was very interesting because it reminds me of my dissertation research, research that I ended up publishing on uh, adolescent females with eating disorders. And what we did is we created these vignettes. And the vignettes were um, somewhat like, ambiguous in nature. So they were these social dilemmas. And in the social dilemmas, there'd be something that would typically happen to a high school student. Uh, An example of one of the vignettes would be, you know, your best friend, uh, you know, is throwing a a party after homecoming and inviting a bunch of people over. You never got a formal invite. Mm. You sit down at the lunch table, a couple of your friends ask if you're going and you haven't been invited yet. Mm-hmm. Why do you think this happened, right? And so what it does is it pulls for intent attributions, your belief on why something may happen. So at this point, we don't have any other information mm-hmm. other than the fact that this friend what did not yet receive an invite. <clears throat> and what I did is I took a a group of young girls who were diagnosed with either... Bulimia or anorexia, and were in a, uh, a hospital based setting. So they had that diagnosis. And then I compared it to what are called healthy controls. So a, a group of uh, high school females who didn't have any mental health diagnosis. And what came out of it was those who were struggling with anorexia and bulimia demonstrated a bias. And it was a hostile intent attribution bias. It was this idea that they believe they must have done something wrong, and therefore they weren't invited. (laughs) While the healthy control group was able to kind of make statements like, "Well, I'm her best friend. I don't require an invite," or "Maybe I haven't seen her yet." Right. So there's a there's another explanation. Yeah. While the the group with the eating disorder pathology was a group that was like very much um, personalizing it. Mm-hmm. And so it, it brings up this idea of um, when we are bombarded with so much stimuli, most of it is rather ambiguous and we make sense of it based on you know our own history, our own beliefs. But when a culture shapes that by talking about things in terms of, and even rewarding this idea of being a victim or interpersonally being a victim to others, and you can be rewarded for it, what does that do to shape the way that people think and consequently their own mental health? Mm -hmm. So we've been reading some articles or just having some discussions. Our podcast has been talking about areas of popular culture um, and things that influence mental health. And this is one of them, this idea that um, you know, people can go through work, go through life with this sensitivity to the idea that others could be victimizing them, and maybe an injustice is is done. And then, how might that lead to other policies, both in education and in the workplace, and, and so forth?
0: Can I just uh, start because I have I've seen this in our school. I've seen kids. Um Become less resilient, I guess you could say, over the course of now twenty years, and I'm not I'm not quite sure exactly what happened or why. But when I want to go back is to that self esteem movement that we discussed a couple of podcasts uh, ago. I don't know if you remember that, and you brought it up. I just want to start there because the question I have is: Could that movement that came in the the education? It was also in the workplace. Could that kind of could that have led to this? victimization or, or, or let's put it this way, could that have been the finger pointing everything out? It's everyone else's fault.
2: It's a very interesting connection, Mm -hmm. right? Like I know my mind goes there because when you talk about the self-esteem moment movement at that time, it was this idea that people feel when people feel good about themselves, right? It's almost a protection from like negative experiences. If they can feel good about themselves, they build confidence and they build resiliency. And that's not true. Like we know, that's not true. Right now, there can't right. be some false sense of com- confidence or esteem. In fact, like people know better, right? Our esteem is is built over time through our own overcoming of challenges mm-hmm. and um, our achievements, and feeling good about who we are in, in basic areas. So, the protection of negative emotions does more harm than good. So, in this in this victim culture, like this idea that you might feel like you've been uh, victimized by another person is, again, that over-sensitivity and like protection to ever feeling those negative emotions, right? Here's an example that we see all the time right now, okay? So let's say you text somebody and you're looking for an answer. A lot of time goes by and you don't receive a text, how do you think about it
0: well this, uh, this happens quite a bit and i guess i look at it from a perspective of what i'm going through which would be sometimes people will text me and it takes me 24 to 48 hours to get back to them <laughs> because of my busy life and my children and You know, you sit there with the intent of, oh, I got to get back to this person, but then all of a sudden something else comes up and something else comes up, and it's not like you're minimizing your relationship with that person at all. But eventually, I do get back to them. I, I, I would try to empathize with them and think, oh, well, are they, are they they angry at me because I didn't get back to them? But that's just my 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 life right now. Yeah, we're all guilty of that.
1: I I think I have two or three texts right now in my phone that. I need to get back to
0: people. Yeah, to he respond never responded to, to me the other day, but I have you blocked, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but
2: this is somewhat generational, right? Like we're, we're is, in our, yeah. we're in our forties, right? So we yeah. didn't grow up with that. I thought phone. you were born in 1996. I was joking.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> we, yeah. So like we're, we're in our mid forties here and you know, we remember a time where there was no such thing as a text. I'm message. still waiting for the postman to get back to me, <laughs> <laughs> but like in our therapy sessions, and with a younger generation and with people who have lowered tolerance for that kind of ambiguity or uncertainty, you know, they're left up to their own biases. And you'll certainly hear people talk about things like they don't want to get back to me. They don't care. They're ghosting me. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a personalization to it. And if you're not careful, you respond ineffectively, right? Especially like in relationships, you know? So, you know, there's no response to a text and, you know, thirty minutes, forty minutes go by, and the person starts kind of lashing out through text, right? And that interpersonal sensitivity, that bias—you know, believing that being pers—they're being ignored purposely. Mm-hmm. And you know, we can talk about how society has kind of shaped that today.
1: Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever like stepped out of a movie theater, turned your phone back on, and then there's like fifteen texts from somebody, and you're like, oh, happens, happens all the
2: time, right? <laughs> yeah. And you know, at some points you feel like there's a pressure to have to respond to that person. Yeah, yeah. But here's my pressure. It's because I
1: know I'll forget if I don't. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I don't respond to an email, well, it's just self-discipline for yourself. You know, you know who you are. Right? That's why you respond right away.
0: Well, sometimes you don't respond right away because you Somebody will send you something and you have to think about things too, right? I mean, it's more rational to think yeah, about a response. It depends It's
1: like you're asking a question about your edge thoughts. You know, I need some time to think about Excuse it. Excuse me. <laughs>
0: yeah, that takes quite a while for you guys. And sometimes you don't respond at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's four questions
2: here in the Scientific America article. I saw that. Let me just kind of throw them out there for our listening audience. Should we keep score of ourselves? Let's keep score and the listening audience out there. Keep score. So I want you to rate how much you agree with each of these items on a scale of one to five. One would be not me at all, all the way to five. This is so me. Okay. First question. There's only four of them. It is important to me that people who hurt me acknowledge that an injustice has been done to me.
1: Hmm. Calling me dangerously naive. You on- only a scale of one to five. One to five. Where do you fall on that? One is not at all. Five. This is so me. Okay, I got it.
0: You're up first. Oh, you to Oh, I thought we're gonna keep response. score and then tally. Are you? Up te- the are you texting us your response right now? You haven't responded. yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd say I'm. Uh, I'm about a two. A two. Okay. Yeah. I would say well, two.
1: Yeah, I'm probably.
2: A one or two on that, yeah. you know? And of course, there's a lot of depends. Let we do 1.5? Yeah,
1: this can't. is Rogers. It depends. <laughs> no,
2: like, how bad did they hurt me? You, know? <laughs> you can't put me in this world. <laughs> you robbed my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> Acknowledge it.
1: <laughs>
2: All right, number two. I think I am much more conscientious, conscientious and moral in my relations with other people compared to their treatment of
1: me. Um, I'd say I'm a three there because I am very conscious of the way that I treat people
0: and uh, that's a two
2: yeah, I'll, I'll say a two as well. When people are close when people who are close to me feel hurt by my actions, it is very important for me to clarify that justice is on my side. I'm a
1: one.
0: Yeah, I would say a one, maybe a two depends on if you know I feel like I really did something wrong and then they come back i I think of one one or two yeah and the final one yeah i'd say i'm a one too
2: it is very hard for me to stop thinking about the injustice others have done to me i'm a one i'm
0: a one one
2: so it says here if you score four or five on all of these items you may have what psychologists have identified as a tendency for interpersonal victimhood. And I think the last one speaks to like that rumination process, like somebody hurts you. You can't stop thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And boy, the social media world, the media um, kind of this woke left culture that we're in almost like amplifies all this. And you see some of the reactions and responses, like especially on Twitter, you know, for me, Twitter is a, an opportunity to you know express some ideas, get people to think differently. It's part of a platform. Uh, sometimes you get to engage with colleagues, and sometimes you get to engage with, with people. Mm-hmm. And it's really important for me that that's done respectfully. But boy, some of the comments that come in on, on Twitter, it's like there was a personal attack to a, a, an individual. They
1: interpret something you said as a personal attack on them. Yeah, you don't even mm-hmm. know
2: this, yeah. and <laughs> and it, and the thing is, they don't know my intent, mm-hmm. and it's almost never the intent. I, I always look at them like, "How did you get that from that tweet?" Right, right, right. So it's almost like they're projecting, you know, and they read that tweet through their eyes, mm-hmm. and there's a defensiveness and even a lashing out, and. Many of them believe, like that, that there's a moral superiority. I was
0: gonna say the moral elitism from that article too. I saw that.
2: Yeah, and the, this is all new, fellas. Like, like, I don't want us to be the the forty year old guys here say oh, there were better times, you know, back in my day. But we're talk we're seeing the the culture just shift and change, and not in a positive way because we're all trying to make sense. Of the mental health crisis, the rising rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, like that's part of this podcast. Let's understand what what happened culturally to get here. And that's what always
0: gets me about some of the responses that you'll have on Twitter. And I just, you're here to help people, you know, be better and to lead fulfilling lives and to try to train them, uh, particularly with the way that they're reacting to the world. How is that negative at all? When you say things and they respond, and I've seen it, I've pointed it out to you, I'm confused. You you go through the comments of Sometimes because there are some serious things that are happening where a person attacks and I'm just like, why? And then I'll go and I'll look at their profile because I want to see genuinely, right? Why are they saying these? Mm -hmm. And there's nothing there there's, it's constant attacking of the world in general for a lot of the individuals that are doing it. So I'm curious as to what that is. There's a term I would like you to clarify a little bit for myself and then also for social ambiguity, (laughs) social ambiguity.
2: So that's what I was referring to before. The fact that most of the situations and stimuli that we face uh, are unclear, right? They're Mm -hmm. neutral, right? So it's like when Sean, Sean interpreted the look on my face after I drank the hot coffee. He interpreted it as that I was making a face at him, right? So there's so much socially that, um, you know, we have to make sense of in order to respond effectively.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And when most of that is neutral, um, you know, we you make sense of it based on how you think about the world. That's why this concept of microaggressions can be very very dangerous yeah all mm-hmm. right so, um, I'll give you guys an example out to dinner you know last night with with a couple friends and um, you know the, I, I wanted another drink right and the um, the waiter didn't come back and come to our table but you know what the the waiter went to a couple other tables and missed ours right? Well, clearly you had enough, you had enough. He must have hated me. (laughs) Or
0: you were giving the look that you gave Sean earlier. That's right.
2: (laughs) It's something about me. And then, so when we talk about microaggressions and racism, right? Think about that person who says, you know, I, I didn't get that drink because of the color of my skin. Mm. Right. Like, do we know that, right? Like that's that idea of a microaggression as if it's true, like as if we can understand that person's uh, intent and that was purpose. Purposeful and it was aggressive, right? It's aggressive in nature, like because you are less than I'm. I'm not going to think about you in the same way, mm. and this is dangerous in in society that we kind of go on that micro level to try to uh, understand or determine another person's intent. Mm-hmm. Bottom line is, I th- the guy was busy, right? Of course, uh, you know, and uh, he's got to get food for another table. He's running back and forth. We already got our food and our drinks. Like he's not
0: and you're multitasking. You're doing a you know a thousand things at once. So yeah. You're going to forget something or someone. It definitely wasn't purposeful, right? Did you
1: ever work in a restaurant, Kelly? I did. Yeah, me too. In college.
0: Yeah, I worked for uh yeah, pizza shop in Mass for a long time and 36-hour weekends.
1: Yeah, I worked at the Ground Round. And I think anybody that ever works in a restaurant setting when you become A patron later on gosh the ground round the ground round yeah you're much more um
3: uh
1: polite and patient because you understand all those components of running around having more tables than you really can handle at one time and you have a tendency to just let things slide you know where other people you can see them rude and frustrated kind of like roger was last night when he wanted he needed more whiskey (laughs) (laughs) i was drinking whiskey oh there you go (laughs) how did you know (laughs)
2: Yeah. So
1: I was, um, you know, in terms of when we were growing up and, and where we are now, yeah, there is this component of uh, the old guys, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. But I, I just, I was thinking of back to um, our last uh, podcast episode with, with Agnes on DBT, and she was talking about some individuals are a little more sensitive to others. And she used that that metaphor um That I think Marsha Linehan said that someone who is a burn victim and the wind is blowing, um, that's what it feels like to them. So if somebody is more overly sensitive and now you have all these other channels to get exposed to people criticizing you with social media, you're posting something on YouTube, you're posting something on Twitter, you're on Facebook, and people are commenting, you're just getting bombarded with people that are sometimes being critical of you or ridiculing you or saying something that you don't feel is in a positive way those are just more areas for you to just be miserable so if you're an overly sensitive individual why would you even want to be on social media you should just stay off that crap
0: because aren't they also getting there's rewards reward, oh, right? oh
1: the- all
2: right so i don't know if that was a, a lead in no, it was a good a- lead in so here's some based on some clinical research that i was you know uh, finding mm-hmm. pr- in preparation for this podcast Researchers found that the tendency for interpersonal victimhood consists of four main dimensions. Number one, constantly seeking recognition mm. for one's victimhood. And that's the problem. Like, we're in, a, we're in a time where people want to identify as mentally ill in order to get some social rewards. Let me give you some examples. And this is strange to me. So um, we are... Like dead center with a lot of colleges and universities are like surrounding our practice, mm-hmm. Lehigh University, Lafayette College, Moravian University. Um, what other ones are on? DeSales. Well, oh, Pennsylvania yeah.
1: has so many colleges and universities. I think there's more in this state than anywhere there else. There are, yeah. yeah.
2: So there's nothing more normal between the ages of eighteen and twenty-two than breakups, right? So we'll have. Students between the ages of eighteen and twenty-two call in for treatment for depression, mm-hmm. right? And then you realize that um, it's not depression; they went through a breakup, right? And this goes back to other kind of concepts we've talked about of normalizing the human experience.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They're sad, they're grieving that lost, they're hurt, but like you know that they're going to be fine, right? Right. But they self-identify as as depressed, and they want you. To write them a note, doctor's note, to get out of taking exams.
1: <laughs> wow, is that is that even possible? Because not, I, not I, in my office, no. but <laughs> people do it. Like, and, like, and a professor will accept it. They have to, I think. Like, so that's the, they have to. Yeah,
2: they. So they. So they went and told their professor that they're too depressed to take the test. And the professor says, "Well, I'll need a doctor's note." What? And that's the disability culture, right? Like I'm disabled by my emotions; right. I'm unable to function, and that's that right. is supported in in society. What are the implications of that, right? So, when,
1: well, that attitude carries over into the the work environment that they think they can get away with that. The the world does not stop for you. Like it, yes, it, it does now. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it the does, world can stop it, for it, you.
0: Yeah. Is it possible that as they grew up, uh, on, again I'm I'm blanketing this, but peop, individuals that will do that, okay, um, when they grew up, that when something happened when they were young and they felt the sense of sorrow or struggle, that they actually received some sort of reward, where um, the attention that they got from that, you know from feeling down or just sitting there, that that attention might have been a reward and playing a role now.
2: My really insightful clients. Um, who are really open will talk about this and say, I, "I'm just pulling for sympathy," right? Like, when you look at a maladaptive reaction, oh, there's that word maladaptive. Oh, I can't wait to share the audience that clip, you know, to support where society's going. Let's, we'll
0: do it after this. You can lead yeah. into okay, it. Yeah.
2: But I, we use this word all the time as psychologists. So whenever there's a maladaptive reaction, like when someone reacts in a way. That's going to make a, a bad situation worse or not serve them so well. well. We analyze it, right? We'll do chains around it. We'll understand its context. So some clients will, ju- you know, you'll try to understand what was the function. You know, why did you do that? You know, why did you text out a picture to your friends of cuts on your arm? Mm. You know? Um, and so it's pulling for sympathy, right? It's the reward. I'm in pain or some things, you know, happened to me and uh, I want people to, you know feel sorry for me or feel bad for me or tell me they're there but when it gets to the you know the extremes is they'll victimize themselves in order to get that feeling so sometimes they'll they'll make up lies about what somebody has done to them or you know probably more frequently it's just like they're misinterpreting that person's behavior or reaction and they're attributing hostile intent to it and so now you know, they're calling out somebody as being uh, like an, a perpetrator or an abuser. And that, you know, we see that on the other end, like the person who was unfairly or unjustly accused of harming somebody. But but harming somebody is, it's no longer about the action or behavior anymore. Someone can just attribute intent to it, right? Mm-hmm. And therefore, you were discriminated against or you were harmed against. Like, so we're in this kind of dangerous place where like your intentions that someone else places on you are what can you know create harm and we're seeing it shift in academia is is the worst Um, they're the worst offender of this and we recently saw a psychologist who worked in academia quit her job because of um, how some of these ideas have been, which are, which are harmful to people's well-being and mental health, are being pushed by you know, administrators or people uh, on this you know, kind of cultural left. So we'll play a little clip here and, and let this psychologist talk about it.
3: My parents immigrated to the United States from Egypt. As a child in a poverty-stricken neighborhood, I watched my parents, who spoke no English, overcome obstacles, enter the middle class, and build a better life so that their daughter could attend university. I recently resigned my position as a professor of clinical psychology at Antioch University in Los Angeles. I became a clinical therapist with the hope of helping others find the same resilience and strength I saw in my parents. But a divisive and regressive ideology has taken hold of my former workplace and the field of psychology as a whole. This ideology teaches people to see themselves as part of an oppressed group and to blame their hardships on oppressor groups. And sometimes that's true, but most often this way of thinking, which encourages hypersensitivity, is harmful to people who are seeking help for mental illness conditions. As mental health professionals, our job is to encourage clients to build resilience and self-empowerment to improve their lives and climb out of negative mental states. But we are now being encouraged to validate our clients' perceptions that they live in a world of microaggressions, inequity, and racism, and that they have no control over improving their situation. This mentality locks clients into a condition known as learned helplessness in which breaking free from depression seems hopeless. If we therapists validate our client's view that the world is an unsafe and hopeless place, we implicitly affirm that their circumstances are impossible to change. For those suffering from serious mental illness, their therapist may be the very last stop before they decide that their life is not worth living. Before I resigned, my department had encouraged therapists to cease using professional terms that are now deemed psychologically damaging including the term maladaptive behavior, perceived to be judgmental towards our clients. This term could be the key to a client's mental health as it clearly distinguishes unhealthy coping actions, such as substance abuse and self-harm, from healthy coping actions, such as social support, exercise, or meditation. This ideological environment is also impacting the students. I have seen psychology students quit working as counselors Due to perceived microaggressions from clients or coworkers. A student justified turning in assignments late because they were traumatized by a debate in class and needed a week in bed to recover. When I showed a video about a new treatment for addiction, students focused on the speaker's skin color instead of the essential content. I am deeply concerned about those suffering from mental illness and the recent rapid rise in anxiety and depression. What I saw in my workplace makes me fear the next generation of therapists will be trained to make the problem worse.
0: Oh, yeah. So there's two, two, two two key things I want you to speak about was learned helplessness and then the maladaptive talk, talk to us a little bit about that. First of all, like, can you imagine
2: fragilizing another human being to such an extent? that an actual word that is used could be traumatizing and they couldn't handle it and, and view yourself as a mental health professional. I I couldn't imagine being a compassionate, educated helper and, and adopt that mindset. Yeah. Right. Um, that is so idiotic and harmful but we're seeing this on on the cultural left and in our school systems and in academia. So that's that's one university that we're aware of, and those I- those ideas have been percolating. You know, I think there was a time I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. Like we we dismissed some of these ideas as fringe. Yeah, you know, they're just not fringe anymore. No. You know, they're, they are popular culture and
1: See, that's my, my mind was going there. Like, is this a fringe example?
0: No. Remember uh, there's that book I told you guys to yeah. read the coddling of the American mind. Yep. And that, this is truth. And that started Evergreen state university. Mm-hmm. It was not the start of everything, but these microaggressions and they, they were concerned that it was taking away from true critical thought. It was taking away from the ability to teach individuals about history, about it was going to change everything. Mm-hmm. And now it's, it seems to be coming to fruition, and it seems to be actually infiltrating psychology. The, 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 the place that people need help with the most is their brain. And if psychologists feel as if they, they can't do that because people are coming in and saying, you know, I need a doctor's note for depression. Well, as a psychologist, you probably have a choice. You're either going to do that because, you know, you're, 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 you need the client's. And which would not help that person at all or you're going to be radically genuine with them you're going to sit there mm-hmm. and actually give them therapy I, I'm,
2: I'm thinking about how far we've come away from you know stoicism you know this idea you know if you make me angry you are my master right mm. and the and this the stoics were about you know self-control and regulating emotions And there's this concept of internal and external locus of control. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's basically this, this idea that, um, you know, if you have an external locus of control, you are, you are completely influenced by your environment, right? Um, while an internal locus of control would be, you know, you can't always control the things that happen to you, but you know, we can control our reactions, and that seems to correlate with sound mental health. And so when you talk about coping and the things we've talked about here about developing resiliency, it's how you think about something and how you respond matters. So now if everyone's kind of oppressed, right, you feel like that person is your master, right? They, they can control anything, that idea that they say that uh, might provoke an emotion in you. Or if you disagree with something that somebody says on an idea, you know, you make yourself out to be a a victim to those ideas. Mm -hmm. And your reactions can be rather intense. And I have no doubt that these people really do feel like they they are hurt. And because of their relationship to their own emotions, they become overwhelming. They're more likely to be incapacitated by
1: them. So that locus of control. Um, as I was reading uh, the article you shared with us, that's a, there's an external or an internal component. So those who are more influenced by what's happening in the world around them and that they have no control over things, that's the external component. Internal is somebody that would bring it to themselves. As I was reading that, it made me think of, um, that one quote by Ronald Reagan. Um, I think it was attributed to Ronald Reagan. Uh, it said, if not us, who, if not now, when, um, he kind of took that from an old, um, There was a rabbi from over 2,000 years ago, uh, Rabbi Hillel the Elder, who stated, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? And being for my own self, what am I? And if not now, when? To me, that just kind of summarizes that you're in control of your own destiny and how you react to things and how you feel. And uh, no one else is really going to, no one else really cares, you know, (laughs) what's going on with you. So stop thinking that people really care and they want to control you that way.
2: Yeah. So that, that belief is very healthy. Right. And I, and I think it, it allows people to rise up when adversity occurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can be a real victim to, to somebody. And we use the word survivor now, like often, like, I think that's a much more um, that's that supports personal agency and response. But um, that, what's this rooted in? Right. There's um, this, this, if, if you are if you are fragile, emotionally vulnerable and 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 weak, you can be controlled, right? Like you can be controlled by somebody who wants to use your emotional pain to their benefit, but they're not aware of that. They're not aware of right. that, right? Like I don't think we're going to talk about this type of stuff about right. uh a history lesson on how, you know, governments use propaganda and uh you know, the history of, of, of Marxist ideas and this kind of cultural Marxism that that exists. And it's always about a group of people rising up against another group of people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it all it is and always has been uh, an, an ideology that in reality is never going to be able to work. There'll always be somebody in positions of power. Of course. Right? Yep. So to say that everybody is the same, Right. And that's what what you talk about when you talk about, you know, Marxist ideas, you know, that the physician is no different than the day laborer and janitor in the building. Right. Like their contributions to society are no are, are no different. But on another level, psychologically, it undermines the ideas that you can that some people work harder, you know, that some people are raised different. Uh, some people are are smarter, stronger, bigger, faster. Like the individual differences that exist, you'd have to ignore that to adopt this cultural Marxism, mm-hmm. right? And the and the truth of the matter is, like, there's differences, right? Even if you're talking about a physician and a janitor, right? There's there's a better brain surgeon, better heart surgeon. We go to multiple, uh, we go to multiple, have multiple opinions if we have a really important medical decisions. Mm -hmm. We look, we seek out experts, right? Mm -hmm. So no, there's a difference, right? And you have to acknowledge that. And that person can be rewarded or should be rewarded for their hard work, for their talent.
1: That's why capitalism works.
2: That's why it works, right? It's the individual person versus, you know, another entity, right? Like, Someone else determines your fate. I have a better widget
1: than you and I can do it at a lower cost. You're going to buy my widget over somebody else's.
2: And that's not to deny that, you know, this is human beings, right? That crony capitalism can exist, right? And, uh, you know, we can start something and then just, you know, hire people based on the fact that they're family or they're friends and give them power and give them money Mm -hmm. and they never earned it, right? That happens, Right? That, like, that's not to deny that. And and that's not also to deny things like a tax code, you know, that there could be changes in that to benefit off society. We don't have to go there. We're mm-hmm. talking about cultural ideas and Marxism that, like, if you do not perform, it's not you. It's somebody did that to you. So you don't make the team. It's the coach's fault. Mm-hmm. You don't get the A. It's the teacher's fault, Right? And it creates an emotional fragility and external locus of control where you are unable to tolerate those feelings of rejection, of struggle, of personal failure. And it inhibits your ability to actually learn, adapt, and overcome. So don't think this is better for you, for our children. Don't think this is better for society. You are just actually shaping this intense sensitivity and development of depression and fear because they're unable to cope and respond to the challenges that life will inevitably bring you.
0: Yeah, I mean, life provides struggles that knock you down and test your will. But Chumbawamba. There you go. I get knocked <laughs> down. Who knew that that was going to play a role in this? That's awesome. There you go. Yeah, but they no. You're brilliant, Sean. (laughs) You played us out that (laughs) way just to get to that. I let it in. I
1: wanted this to happen so
0: bad. (laughs) Why can't? Why can't um, individuals? Because if you ask them, you know, the students say, "Hey, are you that individual that can get up? Do you embrace struggle?" A lot of students will say, "I'm the guy. I'm the person that can do that," and yet that's not what I'm seeing. In fact, the opposite. It's pointing fingers at everybody else but themselves. There's there's like maybe a handful of students that I could say, wow, you are truly resilient. You understand that your actions and what you've done, the choices that you've made are the reason as to why. They, the majority they'll feel as if they're that person. Does that make any sense?
2: Yeah, yeah. And like this is something that absolutely gets me fired up. This idea that anxiety is a disability, mm. right? So I, I tweeted this. And of course, you're always going to get your comments. But here's, here's a tweet like, tell me what's wrong with this. There's a major difference between having anxiety and maladaptive reactions to anxiety. Anxiety is normal. Anxiety is adaptive. Anxiety is valid. Your reactions to anxiety are what can become problematic. Don't drug anxiety. This is a maladaptive reaction.
1: I'll tell you what's wrong with that tweet. Only 5% of your audience understands what maladaptive means. Basically, it doesn't work for you. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah.
2: it, it's, it's ineffective. So this was crazy. Like, we would, I would work in the school system. And, you know, you'd have to do a presentation, right, in class. Or, you know, have to take a test. And kids would get anxious about it. Duh. Of course, right? You want to perform. Your body's going to you know, have an anxious re- reaction or response. This is normal. And part of the growth process and part of learning is how to like, handle that feeling and forge ahead. If not, anytime you feel anxious, you're just going to avoid. We would get kids who would get an accommodation and don't have to do the presentation just because they felt anxious. So when we're talking about how these ideas developed and how we got to this point you know this was in 2004 2005 and i'm coming from a perspective of you know i'm in my doctoral program i'm learning it's like wait a second here no the actual way to help this kid is to do the presentation right like that's how they overcome it it's not to find an accommodation for it you know what are you going to do like go to you're going to go off to college and you're going to tell your professor you can't do the presentation? What are you going to go into the workforce and they're not able to present to their colleagues? Like this makes no sense. How are you helping somebody by creating that accommodation? And ultimately, what what does it do? Like they go to their doctor and they get a pill for it, you know? Like, well, if I can feel less anxious, then I can perform, which is never the case, mm-hmm. right? And there's no drug that's going to eliminate your anxiety or fear. I mean, you're just going to become dependent on a, on a drug. You don't learn those coping skills, so like this idea that this is actually like compassionate and empathic, and we're like supporting people—that it's a lie, and it's part of that cultural Marxist idea. Um, like everyone's the same, and you know we're going to rely on an external entity to try to make your life as comfortable as possible. Don't fall down that path because it's an evil path and it never it never works out so fortunately you come into a center like ours who's very scientific and evidence-based we work with our clients to build them to be able to do these things right Mm -hmm. and that's effective treatment it's not sitting there and validating what is maladaptive or invalid then you're you're just kind of supporting the ideas that make that person feel so emotionally vulnerable and fragile
1: in the first place right Go ahead. There was a, a great story in, in one of those articles you sent us, um, the Canadian physician, who they called as the father of stress research with the, the alcohol. Father. Go ahead. Tell that story. Yeah, I, I, like I that. have it here. I'm just going to read it um, word for word. So uh, Dr. I might pronounce his name wrong. Uh, Sely, Selye, S-E-L-Y-E. Um, he is the Canadian physician. Uh, Practical stories told of two sons raised by the same alcoholic father. As adults, one of these sons grew up practicing total abstinence from drugs and alcohol. The other son, sadly, repeated the cycle of addiction in his own family by becoming an alcoholic himself. Interestingly, when queried about their divergent lifestyle choices, both sons gave the same response. With a father like mine, what can you expect? Now that to me is the best way of representing an internal and external locus of control oh
0: yeah right is that yeah absolutely great story i I think um i think people in general don't understand how much they can control Mm -hmm. right so control it's what what you can versus what you cannot and what you can control is an enormous sea of opportunity um it's what you can't control is is incredibly rare. It's almost like a hundred-year storm that would come into your life of what you cannot control. Yet people act as if these storms are are prevalent every day. Mm -hmm. You know?
1: So um, I'm going to throw this to you, Raj. If seeing reality as clearly as possible is the most appropriate way to approach life... Why are we not teaching DBT in high school? Because that's what DBT is for, right? I, I don't. So I'm, I'm going to
2: try to get us to stop talking about that. Now, dialectical behavior therapy is an entire therapy. You're I talking about coping skills. Yes. Okay. But isn't that a
1: major part, a major component of dialectical behavior yeah. therapy? Okay. We talked about
2: it last time. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, emotion regulation skills, distress yes. tolerance skills, interpersonal effectiveness, mindfulness, right? Mm-hmm. And this idea of radical acceptance is one of those skills. Why aren't they taught in schools? Like the public school system and the ideas that have infiltrated the public school system have without a doubt, you know, been based on certain ideology and it's driven into the minds of our kids. And if you do not have a a, a strong family and parents who can talk about resilience, who can talk about coping you know, they begin to adopt this victim mindset because it's rewarded, it's reinforced. We have clients that come in into, into our center who are, are struggling with severe emotion dysregulation and have adopted that victimhood mindset. And I myself has, have had to go to their schools and tell the teachers to stop scheduling these 30-minute sessions, giving them emotional support, for their, for their fears Mm. that you are making the situation worse. They're getting rewarded for it. That doesn't mean that there couldn't be some, you know, productive um, teaching moment that the mental health professionals or the school counselors or the teachers could implement, but it should be solely focused on what is the problem and how do you overcome it? Right. Mm -hmm. But that's not what's, what's happening. They're they're taking these new ideas and you're seeing it under the guise of things like trauma-informed. Yeah,
0: that's what we're going through right now.
2: Yeah. So this idea of trauma informed is like almost anything that can be painful for somebody is identified as traumatic, which as a concept in it in itself is is really harmful psychologically because there's legitimate traumatic events around death and disability. Um and sexual trauma you know mm-hmm. violence things that are threatened the the threaten the, the person's sense of safety and security you know getting a bad grade isn't traumatic having a having a discussion where someone has different viewpoints is not traumatic mm-hmm. right so trigger warnings are under this concept right okay before we get into this next discussion we're going to talk about Situations that might provoke some deep, strong emotion. If you can't handle it, we're gonna have a safe space in the hallway in that other room. It is the you know the constant fragilization, you know, of our society, and we're gonna just get weaker as a, as a culture. You know, the American culture and the American mindset is is going to be undermined. It is being undermined, right? And our foreign adversaries are going to take advantage of that economically, mm-hmm. militarily. Like we don't have a really good idea of of history and we try to bring that onto this podcast when we talk about previous generations and what is the constitution and the american ideal and what's it built off of philosophically. Like that can get really distorted and bastardized um from that cultural marxism perspective because it's it's an idea to undermine, you know, that, that individualism because under individualism and under a, a system that creates competition, you know, you bring the best out of each, each person. And that's like the value of sports. That's the value of working hard in school. Like A's should be A's. You know, that, that inflated grade system does not benefit anybody. You need to know who, who rises above, who's who's the smartest, who works the hardest. We have
1: to be able to distinguish. Competition drives innovation and it opens up opportunities for anybody. That's why people came to this country and still do. For that American dream, the opportunity to establish their own business, to be separate from others, to build something for the future. Can I stay on the school system for a moment? Because, I, I mean, we're both products of growing up in the 80s and the 90s. And there was two movies that always stuck with me. I've, I've watched them multiple times. There was um, Stand and Deliver, mm-hmm. which was the math teacher out in, uh, out in LA. And then Lean on Me, which was Morgan Freeman played the character of the principal, I believe it was in Chicago um, <laughs> or Detroit maybe. I thought that was Baltimore. I'll look into it. But um, those were two movies of, uh, of teachers that came in and just like radically took an approach that I believe nowadays they would have been kicked out of school. Sure. Right? Like, and these are two educators we celebrated because of what they were able to
0: achieve. Well, they were changing those, the lives they of were others. telling them you're not victims. That's right. And you're in control. Yep. That's, that's not a radical idea that actually should be taught to every single human being on the face of the planet.
2: Exactly. If you're a victim, you can be emotionally provoked. If you can be emotionally provoked, you can be controlled. And, if you can't see it out there, right, like about how this is used politically to give somebody else power mm-hmm. or how it's used from a business perspective to sell a product, then you are you are in the storm and you're unable to see the sunlight and outside of the storm, you're just stuck in it, right? you can't even see it, and we have to be able as as a culture, to be able to have people who can demonstrate wisdom and and personal strength, and be able to step outside the storm and get people to see things differently, I I think we all many I think many people in the school system like their intentions are pure. <laughs> I think like ultimately they want to do they want to do good by people. Like I think they, they want to really help, but they're indoctrinated. Sure,
0: there's no doubt. One hundred percent of my colleagues are are. Very, very good teachers, and they are there for the right reason, which is to, you know, to care for and and to really be passionate about what they want the kids to learn. But where they and I disagree is is that point. Um, whereas I and several others look at this world and we say, my job is also to get you to think for yourself. My job is also to get you not to point the finger at everything that comes into your life. My job is to get you to the point where you can be self-confident and resilient. That's part of my job too. It is not to just say, oh, I'm so sorry that you're going through this, so let's not do this anymore. That, to me, is going to only keep those, those students down and, and heading down a path where they're, they're never going to be able to grow, personal growth.
2: Yeah, that, the question always should be when, when somebody falls short. Okay, Um, how can we learn from it, Mm. right? Um, You know, your children are going to go through struggles, right? How you respond as a parent makes all the difference in the world. And, you know, my son went through something last week. I won't get into the details. And I found himself, like, just sitting in a dark room by himself, right? So I walked in there and I said, you got the rest of the day to feel sorry for yourself. Tomorrow we develop a plan, right? So, it's what can you learn from it, right? Okay, yeah, it's disappointing what just happened, okay? It's disappointing. I'm with you on that. You're allowed to you're allowed to feel bad about it. But that's different than letting that emotion kind of control you and overwhelm you. Mm-hmm. You know, you you can feel bad about it and now, okay, how do we learn from it? How do you respond? that sets you up for life right that's that's a skill um you can be immune to depression if you you know if you develop that armor and that response um and boy like this these 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 teachers and these school environments how many kids get these get these ieps i this this is something that also it's only gotten worse, but this blew my mind when I was working in the school
1: system. You said IEPs,
0: individual
2: I- education plan, okay. Okay. individualized education plan. All right. They were they're based to accommodate. They were developed to accommodate learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that's obviously gotten larger. There's emotional disabilities, and when you talk about something that's a disability, right? It's a strong relative weakness that deviates from the norm, right? So, like in a when you think about a um, like a bell shaped curve. You know, most people are going to fall into this average range. Mm-hmm. There's going to be people that, you know, kind of tail out onto the extremes, above average, superior. And then on the other end, too, um, where, you know, you're, you're below average or you deviate away. So there should be a small percentage of people who have like a legitimate, you know, disability deviates from the norm. Mm-hmm. And I agree. Those people should have like individualized education to be able to uh, learn in a way that best serves, you know, their capacities, like the way that they make sense of like reading yep. or, so obviously that's, that's an important concept, but it should be a small percentage, right? Because most people are yep. gonna fall in that average range. And in the school district that I was in, which, you know, Kelly works for still, and this was a while ago, God's got it's worse now. You saw the, the percentage of kids that had an identified disability Continued to increase dramatically, right? One that would make it statistically impossible, mm. like it's statistically impossible for that many students to have a disability. And I would, I would look into these reports of these, uh, the testing that was done, and they would identify kids with disabilities who just had a relative weakness, right? So, like maybe you were really strong verbally, right? Right. And then they were in the average range, non-verbally, like spatially. I would see people get identified as having like a a math disability and get accommodations because they were in the normal range there. But in other areas, they were in more superior range. And I would like, I'd look at this. I'm like, this is normal. If you test everybody, you're going to see relative weakness and relative strength. Is there such thing as a math disability? There is, yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And so but you know how, I think it, I suffer from a math disability. All all that was that was pushed. It was pushed by the parent to get testing like because they couldn't tolerate their kid getting a B or a C in something, oh, right? And so it's that it's seeking out that label for for advantages, right? You can't tolerate, you know, not being perfect or at the top. You're you know, everyone has to have this idea that you if you don't succeed it's because of somebody else's fault or something else inherent because remember we're all Everyone's inherently equal, right? And if you're not as good as the other yeah. person, you need to have like advantages to bring you up to that person.
0: Gone are the days of the zone of proximal development where you had the potential and talked about those things and then worked harder with students who, you know, their, their potential at a certain age for math was was this. Well, that's okay. And, you know, as they got older, perhaps they're going to catch up. Those days are, to me, they're, they're gone. And you, you tell me if I'm wrong, Kelly, but what I see
2: are are these professionals, the teachers, they're scared. They're actually scared of the, the, the parents or the community who will, you know, call you out as the, the oppressor. Right. And I would see this with that of the particular school psychologist who was afraid to not identify the disability because the parents pushed for it and you have to be strong in your knowledge, and you have to be strong in your education. You have to have the ability to communicate it well. Um, and if you don't, right, you're going to get called out. You don't know how to really respond. And a lot of people avoid conflict. It's amazing. Right? Like you just, if you avoid, if you're going to approach the word world to avoid conflict. Then it's you know you're gonna take the path of least resistance, That's and sometimes dangerous. it's
1: just to give people what they want.
2: Do
0: you know what beer muscles are, Sean?
1: <laughs> yeah, I get them uh, most weekends.
0: Well, teachers have 1996. <laughs> 1996. Let's, I remember
1: you lumbar. got
2: knocked down.
0: <laughs> teachers have what are what what I want to call faculty room muscles. <laughs> <laughs> so they will sit there and they will talk this humongous game about parents and and these and then when it comes down to it, once they're confronted. It, they deflate like a balloon, you know, and um, and then uh, it's 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 hard. Like again, they, they all, every one of my colleagues and myself included, we are there because we really do enjoy what we do. We're passionate about what we do, and they're very effective with their subject matter and content. Where we're, I think, doing a poor job nationwide is exactly what we're talking about today. We're no longer focusing on raising resilient students were focused more on appeasing their emotion and making sure that they're not feeling anything mm. bad and, or negative. And what's most important for us? What are the consequences? That's right? right? If, if
2: your intention is to do no harm, and you think that you're doing something to help somebody, you're not right? You're, you're, you're not helping that person be able to deal with what life is going to bring. So we have to shift the conversation to doing harm, right? You know, fragilizing somebody and disabling them, um, victimizing them is not helpful, right? It is, it, it's not compassionate. It's not kind. It's none of those things. It is harmful. Change the way we think about it and the way we talk about it.
0: Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.